takes to make a shot at that range. Everything comes into play that far. Humidity, elevation, temperature, wind, spin drift. There's a six to ten second flight time, so you have to shoot it where the target's going to be. Even the Coriolis effect, the spin of the earth comes into play. Planes be advised. And I mean nasty and tired. I eat Constantino wire and piss napalm. And I can put a round through a flea's ass at 200 meters. 870 yards and close it. Wind, three-quarter value, push to left. How can you shoot women, children? Easy. You just don't lead them so much. <laughs> this is my rifle, this is my gun. This is for Biden, this is for Hey everybody, Tyler and Ray here for the Sub-MOA Podcast. We appreciate you guys joining us for today's episode. Enjoy. We're going to get started at, uh, what day is it? Wednesday. Ooh, today's Wednesday, yeah. You know the actual date though? 22nd? I'm guessing. It is the 22nd. Man, so damn. Any? God bless it. All right, everybody. This is Tyler. I got Jeremy here. What up? Roll the dice on this episode. We have some things scratched down, but it never goes as planned. I think we started our conversation at like 8.30 on the dot, almost. Yeah, it's been a minute. We just bullshitted a whole podcast that nobody's ever going to (laughs) hear. It's probably a good thing. It's confidential stuff. We'll have to charge for those episodes. Yes. What is it? Uh, like Patreon or we can do a Snapchat premium. Yeah, man. I'm a little, I'm a little disappointed with some of the Patreon. I'm, I subscribe to some of those. It's for that, for that foosball stuff you don't like. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Dude, it's shitty because I pay $5 a month to subscribe to this podcast. And what are you getting right now? Well, he, he, he created a tier system. So <laughs> now you got to be a $10 member to hear all of his shit. I'm like, but you're still taking my $5. Where is that going? Yeah, that's some bullshit. Tell me about it. I'm going to protest or some shit. Anyways, so we had planned this podcast for last week, but I got kind of got sidetracked going up to Montana, doing some stuff up there. but. The, uh, the topics that I wanted to hit, I think they're kind of relative to, you know, all of this quarantine lockdown BS that's happening right now. You've got so many people on social media and the internet. I mean, there's, there's groups starting now that are training together via Facebook and YouTube or, or whatever platforms, right? Shit, I'm, I'm sure there's probably like Zoom training episodes now. That would not surprise me. You know, so, but a lot of it is dry fire. Uh, Now there are some of it like, uh, what is that? War horse development got their, their live fire competition out to 300 yards. And I saw people participating in that. That was kind of cool. You know, but there's just a lot of dry fire training or practice that's happening right now. And I think it's something that we should talk about because you, you don't magically just get better because you dry fire practice, you know, like, Oh, I, I did two hours a day for 30 days while we're in quarantine. But for those two hours, 
over 30 days, you were dry firing the wrong way. So your expectations of being that much better at the end of the 30 days are kind of not realistic, you know, like you slap the trigger for 10,000 different repetitions. Why all of a sudden you think on 10,001, you're not going it's to slap the different. trigger anymore, you know? Yep. Yep. So, uh, you know, just little stuff like that. And it's, it's funny because when you think about all the things that go into practice and, and the fundamentals, you know, like we can name off the big ones, right? Like, let's say we're in your living room or hell, we're, you know, we're in the backyard or wherever and we're dry firing and, you know, we get into our position, we're practicing off a barricade and it's a kneeling position. So we're going to repetitiously, you know, build this position. So we, get, we drop down, we build our bone support, we check our natural point of aim, we start controlling our breathing, think about our trigger press, right? We've got good body contact with the ground, with the barricade, all of these things that are pretty well-known things to practice, right? Yeah. But the whole time that you're doing this dry fire practice, you are staring at the target and not the crosshair. You know, like that's just – it's just one small, pretty important detail that you have now left out, you know? Like, yep. Or negatively reinforced. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I just want to kind of talk about dry fire and what I got written down here is top, f top five dry fire training drills. Like, and you know, me and you could go back and forth and kind of throw down, you know, what you value, what I value, um, you know, for me, like when I start to think about dry firing, as much as I want to, I think it's easy. Maybe you agree, maybe you don't, but I think it's easy to want to do some dry fire practice and just jump right into full steam ahead. You know, like yep. I'm going to stand here with my rifle. The beeper's going to go off. I'm going to get into position and I'm going to run the bolt forward and click, you know, like, and for me, what I like to do is also the same thing that I have to force myself to do because I am just as guilty as wanting to just run full steam ahead. But when I back it off, when I slow down, when I take my foot off that gas pedal and say, all right, you know what? I want to do five to 10 reps of just being able to get down into position and having that natural point of aim right off the bat. You know, like I'm not even firing at this point. I'm just, finding what does that position feel like where I have that natural point of aim or, you know, different ways of getting your bag on the barricade. Like as much as we focus on the shooting aspect of it, what about all the other minute details such as how can you be more efficient with your gear? How do you yep. hold the rifle and put your bag down and not lose time? You know, so I think these are all important dry firing drills that are often overlooked for the big meaty portions when a lot of the times your money is in the details. So why don't you I definitely agree. Why don't you lay down one dry fire drill that you would feel falls in your top five? It doesn't have to be number five or number one, just inside the top five, one drill where you're like, this is a mandatory. I want to practice this every time I get a chance. This is one of mine. Uh, 
well, it's not flashy, it's not exciting, it's not unique, but, you know, starting, uh, standing, mag in, bolt back, rifle port arms, pad down in front of you, target at 100 yards, like put one round on a one-inch dot, uh, within, you know, whatever your, whatever your par time is, 12 seconds, 10 seconds, eight seconds, or, or I will start high, you know, 12, work down 11, work down 10, work down nine, work down eight, breaking one good shot, making sure that that reticle is not moving, that you've got all of those fundamentals that you talked about and then back up, reset, do it again. I like it. So the focus is kind of on pretty much what we just talked about, but it's, it's a, it's almost like a tiered system of like, okay, I'm going to get down. I'm going to get in this position and you know, what's my time. And then trying to maintain that perfection or that consistency while improving your time in position, which is important, yep. right? Because, you know, especially when it comes to competition, the amount of time you save getting in position gives you more time to focus on what's my wind call, what's my hold, you know, exactly. Like, um, you know, and I, I have written down here, um, how do some of these things translate or apply to the real world, i.e. law enforcement, military hunting. And, uh, you know, because a lot of the stuff that we talk about is competition based but there's a lot of real world applications. Sorry, man, you cut out a little bit there. What? Oh, I was saying that last 15 seconds again, I lost you. So like we, we reference competition a lot, but a lot of this stuff does translate to the hunting or the law enforcement or the military side. And the proof is definitely look at some of the competitors. I mean, you have active duty military snipers coming to competitions to get better, right? Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that the tactics are going to carry over for everything, but, but the skills do. Absolutely. Right. And I think 100% what you just talked about being able to get down in position, quickly establish that base, that good body position, and then being able to send around is definitely one of those skills. Um, we have a, a target on our website. It's a, uh, literally tailors your training to this specific skill that you're talking about where, you know, we have a three inch, a two inch, a one inch and a half inch circle. And you don't have to follow the times on the paper, but it's more of like, where am I at and where do I want to be? You know, it's like, okay, honestly, with a three inch circle or a four inch circle at a hundred yards, you know, you can get away with a lot of shit. Yep. You know, but then you get to that half MOA circle and it's like, and you're, you better be on point, <laughs> you know, then it starts to look like eight seconds is like, holy shit, how am I going to do this? You know? So but here, here's another thing about dry fire and we're already going to go off onto a little tangent here, but so I come from um, a pistol background, right? I, I did USPSA and IDPA a lot and uh, 2009, I, I shot around 44,000 rounds live fire. And for every live round I sent down range, there was at least 10 dry fire, you know, like repetitions behind that. Um, 
I used to shoot one match a weekend and then I would have a practice session during the week and then I would dry fire two times a day for the other four days a week. Um, do a morning session and an evening session. And my dry fire was structured. I knew what dry fire drills I was going to do. I had an entire array of targets to do them on. And I kept a log of the par times that I was using. And I would decrease those par times every week. Now, the reduction in time might not have been significant, um, like, you know, in PRS or NRL, right? Standard par times, 120 seconds. So there's a lot of time there when you're shooting a USPSA stage and, and the stage might be five or six seconds. You know, when you reduce your par time down by two tenths, that's significant. If that makes sense. Oh, hell yeah. Um, so like it, it was structured and I tracked it. And I think not a lot of people or, or not enough people do dry fire the right way. Like they just kind of give it lift service. Hey, like I'm going to go do some dry fire in my garage. So let me put the barricade up. Let me get the rifle out. Uh, here's a target. I got a little scope adapter on the front of my scope so I can focus in and hey, I'm going to do some reps off this barricade. Right. But yeah. are we tracking the times that we are working with? And then when we come back to do that same drill next week, are we, measuring our progress our improvements uh, maybe we didn't improve maybe we got worse and we need to analyze what we did but oh wait we're not tracking those numbers so how do i know if i'm getting better or not yeah right yeah. i am right there with you um to an extent i definitely agree that probably not enough tracking of of not just part-time but you know, times into position, I guess you could call it a part-time. Um, but then when you look at new shooters, you know, my, my biggest thing with new shooters is, um, I mean, you met uh, Vanessa at yep. the range one day, you know, and then she went to a competition and, and the whole time I'm telling her like, don't worry about the time right now. Like, don't worry about it. Get your hits, build that good position. The hits are what matter. And I think, you want to start tracking your time and you want to be able to start measuring that and improving on it. But it can't be the first thing that you're concerned about when you're so new, right? Like, no, no, no. You, yeah, you definitely have to build like a solid foundation. Yeah. Before you can start, you know, to try to make those movements more efficient, start cutting off a 10th of a second here, a 10th of a second there. Like, that's more advanced level stuff. Maybe I should have put that out there in the beginning, but. No, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. And man, I think one of my top five would be. Mm, mm, I would say, like I said, I like breaking things down and then putting it together in the end. And not every dry fire session is the same, right? Because I mean, you could get, if you break every single skill down, I mean, you're looking at a lot of time dedicated to a dry fire session and not everybody's got, yep. you know, so not every dry fire session is the same for me. I have different like areas that I'm trying to work on, but I think there's one out there that 
is kind of forgotten completely. And uh, maybe you agree. Uh, but again, it gives, it goes back to like getting carried away. Like I'm going to get down, I'm going to get in this position and right. But during these dry fire sessions, how many, including myself, you, like people we know, just regular competitors, how many people you think are when they're practicing, putting these skills all together are also thinking about holding or dialing, like going through those motions just as much as you're building your position, you're, you know, controlling your breathing, you're thinking about your trigger press, you're focusing on the reticle, but what about those things that you're going to deal with in the match or in a hunt or, or in a combat setting? Like you still have to hold, you still have to dial like even yeah, all of the mental stuff, not the physical, right? So is that what you're getting at? Absolutely. I think mental yeah. dry fire is just as important as the physical aspect of it. I would agree. And I would say that that is pro in my mind, it's more important. I, I, I would agree too, because of the amount of times that uh, I'll get caught up in a match and forget to hold on a target. And, you know, like it could be the easiest shot out there and you just missed it because you forgot to hold, right? You yep. mentally haven't programmed yourself or, you know, whatever it is, you're not focused. You haven't beat your, your process into your head, you know, your, your mental checklist, however it rolls. But uh, I feel like that's definitely every time that you dry fire, I would say that would fall in the top five of doing a few repetitions where you're actually having to manipulate the scope or the reticle to simulate a situation, right? Um, yep, I think I think that's super important. But uh, give me another top five. Um, how many of you guys dry fire weak side? Oh shit! Damn, hit me with that one, dude. I don't think I've. Yeah, I don't think I've done weak side dry fire in probably three weeks. Well, that's that's more recent that. than I have because I haven't done it in a minute. <laughs> so I'm calling myself out here, but you know, there's always that one stage at the match where it's going to be you're going to shoot five rounds, you know, strong side, and then you're going to perform a mag change, and you're going to get down and you're going to shoot five rounds weak side. And the bitching flows like wine about that weak side stuff, right? Yeah, that's the, mean, the, those are easy points, man. Easy points. Easy points and. So, you know, not just the aspect of weak side dry firing, right? Because you need to get used to it. Your, your left hand, a lot of us, a lot of us look like Ricky Bobby when he's getting interviewed <laughs> and we don't know what to do with our hands, right? Yep. Like, yep. So you, not only is it getting familiar with how to operate and manipulate your rifle with your wrong hand, but you know, I dealt with this man, a, a year, a year and a half, two years ago, where every time we shot weak side, I would throw rounds to the left and I couldn't figure out why I was like, what the hell is going on? Like I was focusing extremely hard on straight trigger press. I mean, rifles locked down, I'm on target, but my shots weak side were not lining up with my shots strong side and it can huh. be the same conditions. And what was happening was 
the way I was getting behind the rifle, my body would be not in line. I'd be off center. I'd be not in alignment. So the recoil was reacting different. Like the rifle's recoil was reacting different to my body because I wasn't like, I wasn't able to replicate my right sided shooting. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Yep. Um, you know, so I had to like compensate for that, but that's, that's like a bad habit. It's like, Oh, I know I'm going to be shooting left. So I'm going to hold right. Like that's, that's wrong. So I had to figure that out, like what's going on here and, it, you know, doing hundred yard drills to see what the different reactions were watching the reticle after the shot to see how the rifle was jumping. You know, there was a lot involved in that, but dude, I struggled with that for a good amount of time trying to figure that out. Um, but now it feels like, no, I don't want to say it feels 100% natural, but I don't like, you know, my face doesn't frown when they say, all right, we're going to shoot weak side. You know, for me, it just, it's like I can find the reticle with my left eye easily now. You know, my hands know what to do. And, you know, I fixed my body position so I don't have that issue. Uh, but it took time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it, the weak side stuff has always been um, being able to get my a consistent cheek weld. I still struggle with that. The hands, like weapon manipulation, no big deal. Like I can switch it up left, right, right, left. It doesn't matter. But uh, I, I struggle getting behind the scope consistently. So when I do my dry fire for weekend, that is what I'm focusing on. Um, and, you know, when we go to a match and I find out that something's going to be weekend or weak side, whatever you want to call it, that makes me happy because I know that most people do not practice that stuff. So there's four or five points that I'm going to pick up on somebody that I've already picked up on somebody because I know that when they see that stage description, their mindset starts to go negative. That's true. That's true. And, and I'm like, Hey, it's no big thing, you know, like, let's do it. <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, you know, there's another interesting part of the weak side firing is, you know, you, you look at your reticle every single day with your strong eye. And then you got to switch hands. You got to go to that, that weak side, that non-dominant side. You're looking through the scope, your left eye or whatever your weak side is, is looking at that reticle. And I know for some people, it's not, it's not a familiar reticle anymore, right? Their brain, their eye is seeing it, but their brain is not processing it the same way. Yep. They haven't They're not used to that data being <laughs> input from that other eye. <laughs> I know it's pretty funny. Uh, Unless you're calling, in which case you don't have that problem. That's true. He's just got to do weird shit with his with his head, but he makes do, man. You know, like yeah. Every time we've had to shoot non non dominant side, you know, he's like, I got this shit. He drops his yep. piece and you know gets it done. It. Yeah, dude. I mean, that dude's got he he does not leave room for any any excuses. You know, so uh, good on him for that. The, uh, I do remember at Paula one time they had a barricade set up, you know, and I'm, I'm listening to the stage brief and they're like, okay, you got to shoot here, here, and here. And you know, this one's got to be done. Oh, oh, you know what it was? It was three tank traps. So you had to shoot one, two, three, and then go in reverse order, but you had to shoot everything with your, with your, uh, support hand. And, uh, you know, how many, think about how many people, you know, would use the, the, the big, bad, scary tripod as a rear support for a right hand. 
but then yeah and then try to do a left hand but then try to do it left hand you know yeah like, yeah is that something that you practice you know is that uh how well-rounded of a shooter are you when it comes to using the tools that you're allowed to to benefit you you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so little stuff like that man and you know we go back to to being efficient with your movements and you know you can have your rifle in your right hand your, your your bag in your left hand you drop your bag down throw your rifle get in position right but now when you got to do everything with your non-dominant side well, what hand is holding the bag now you know how much time are you wasting getting into position because you haven't dry fired you haven't you haven't even familiarized yourself with shooting from barricade and i bring this up because you know just last year shooting support side or non-dominant side was becoming popular right but as people got used to it what happened now they're now they're making you shoot off of barricades with your non-dominant side now they're including movement just to continue to make it more hard yeah it's that constant battle between shooters and mds so i mean it's just the more stuff that you can practice for or at least familiarize yourself with and sometimes i feel like if you're familiar with it it'll help you gauge how you're going to attack a stage or what your game plan is like you might you might look at something and say okay i have done this before but with the time that they have allotted us it's not going to work out you know like you you start to understand your limitations and you know it's not bad to have limitations it's better to know what they are so you can plan around that shit yep yep instead of discover what they are on the clock yep so uh, so i got i got another one for you okay what let's, you got? let's talk about this because i've uh you know we talked about what we were gonna talk about a couple weeks ago and then there was a little delay, but I experimented with some dry fire stuff because we, we were chit-chatting about how do you dry fire for wind, right? Yeah. And that's a, that's, a mental, that's mental dry fire, not really physical. Um, but tell me what you think of this, right? So you drop a stage. It could be any stage off any barricade or prone or whatever. The, the stage itself doesn't matter, but you give yourself four or five targets at, at – four or five different distances each target is a different distance right and you dope it out in your calculator put that up on your dope chart and then you give yourself a rough wind Um, like hey we've got a a full value left to right five mile an hour wind okay so you get your initial wind calls for those targets all right give yourself a part-time setup and then on the beep or however you measure your dry fire, you are going to roll a dice, all right? And whatever face shows up on the die, whether it's one, two, three, four, five, or six, or if you're using some wacko die, like roll with what you got, you know? But that number represents a percentage that you are off on your wind call. So you then have to do some mental math to readjust your wind curve or whatever you want to call it for your target array all the way out does that make sense yeah it does so so like let's say you've got a target you've got four targets we'll make it easy five six seven eight hundred yards right 
and your wind call is 0 0.5, 0 0.7, 0 0.9, 1.1. And I'm just pulling these numbers out of thin air. I don't have a calculator in front of me. Okay. Um, so 579 and 1.1. And you roll the die and a three pops up. So your wind call is off by 30%. And let's just say you missed on, you know, you missed on the weak side. So you need to add 30% to your wind call. Well, what's 30% into five? 0.4, 0.3. Uh, that's yeah, what I was like point, point, point one five. So if your initial call or if your initial wind call was 0.5, but you need to add 30% into it. Oh, I got to add, I was subtracting. Or, or you could do it that way too. Like you could go, you could go backwards. You know, it doesn't matter. Decide which one you're going to do before you start the stage. But, but that is what you would do. Right. So let's say your wind call is, is 30% too much. So you need to back off. Right. So exactly. You go to 0.35 for your first target. And yeah. then your second target was 0.7. Well, let's pull 30% out of that. So what are you at now? 0.5-ish? Yeah, I was going to say 0 0.5. 0 0.5, right. And then your next target's 0.9. You pull 30% out of that. So you're at 0.6-ish. Yep, yep. And then your last one's 1.1. So you're at like 0.75. But you have to do all of that. Like it's, you know, it's a, it's a mental exercise. And that's assuming a lot of things number one primarily being that that target angle doesn't change so that wind call is going to be pretty constant all the way out at least it gets you thinking you know yeah like, exercise that. that brain yeah absolutely um i mean i think that you could do the percentage portion of it you could you could uh you know use the same dice maybe you got two of them or you know I don't know how you would work it, but you can use it to, to change the mile per hour, you know? So instead of uh, using a percentage, you know, you, let's say you started with the 12 mile an hour and you roll the dice, a six pops up. It was actually a fucking 18 mile an hour wind. Right. So how yeah, do you now, now re-roll your math? Yeah. Like now you're running this, this wind formula through your brain for an 18 mile an hour wind instead of a 12. I mean, I think you could use the dice many different ways, dude. I think it's an excellent idea. So that's, that's the only thing that I could come up with that you could do by yourself. Yeah. Right now, if you were dry firing with a partner, you could get, you know, that, that opens up some more possibilities. Yeah. But, um, I was thinking you could use that same dice, you know, like, hear me out on this. Let's say 0.5 was your starting point. And what was that distance again? Uh, five, six, seven, eight, I think is what I said. So 500 yards, you got a 0.5 wind call, right? So uh, let's call that um, a seven-mile-an-hour wind, okay? All right. Roll the dice, a five pops up. Your wind call was off by 0.5 mils, so you have to add 0.5. So now you're at one mil wind call for 500 yards. What did that – bump your mile per hour to Ooh. 14 14 mile yeah. An hour yeah for doubled it so now as you're running through your different dials or your different holdovers you're also having to recalculate every distance for a 14 mile per hour wind at that point i just guess fuck it <laughs> hold that there hold that there uh. but uh yes yeah, dude i think it's a great idea i didn't even think about doing something like that i mean Cause that's challenging your thinking during the dry fire practice. 
Yep. Um, you know, I was just, I was being a basic bitch and just, I know what my wins are for every single target and I'm practicing perfection. So. Well, the, the, I mean, the reason I, I think about that is how many times have you gone up to a stage with your initial win calls and everything's lined up? Oh, I've had it happen, but I mean, it's not, it's not something that happens all the time. Um, Cause I would say that when I think about like, are my wind calls actually aligning up? I'm talking about like hitting center, you know, like if I see that plate rotate one direction or the other, then it's not a perfect wind call. Right. So I'm constantly making adjustments. So even if yep. I clean a stage, it probably wasn't perfect. If that target was smaller, would I have missed, you know, like, um, you know, so even, even cleaning a stage, it's not perfect. Um, yeah. and then if you add a miss in there, like, well, there you go. Like if everything else was right and you missed on wind, well, then it's definitely not perfect. So, uh, yeah, I agree, man. Making those changes mid stage are pretty awesome. Uh, you have to try that roll in the dice shit. That's pretty badass. <laughs> You'll have to, we'll have to come up with a catchy name for that. Yeah, I, I can't think of it now. I'm too busy trying to think of like some customized dice that have <laughs> some shit written on it. I mean, you could do it. Put a plus one, plus two, a plus three, or a minus one, minus two, minus three. That's oh, like, yeah. so that's like your beginner die, right? And then you could do like a four, five, six on an intermediate die and, you know, a seven, eight, nine on a, on a you're fucked die and, <laughs> and rework your math, man. You know? Yeah. I agree. That, that's pretty cool, man. You'll have, you have to patent that. God shit. Damn it! So, somebody's gonna listen to this shit, and in two weeks, I'm gonna see it on Wish and Amazon and whatever. You guys heard it here first. That's right. That's right. Um. So another topic that relates to dry fire is methods you can use at home. And um, what are the uh, what are the things that you can put over the front of the scope to do that? Oh, those, those like, um, man, I don't, I don't even know what the, what they would be called, but it's like an objective cover that's got a reduced, um, you know, it's got a reduced port, uh, like a peep through it. Yeah. I can't remember the name of it. Um, not right now. Anyway, I, uh, the DFAT, DFAT, DFAT. Uh, yeah. DFAT's one of them. Uh, I mean, there's a couple of them commercially, but you could do your own. I think if you just get one of those cheap Butler Creek covers and put a little pinprick in the end of it. So that's what, you'd have to drill a hole out. But. That's what I did. Um, and I've had a few students message me and they're like, Hey, I want to practice dry firing in the house, but I can't find one of these defect anywhere. And, uh, it, which is true. Cause I tried to find one and you know, everywhere I've looked they're they're sold out. Um, especially now everybody's got them, but, uh, yeah, you just take your scope cover and I initially went with a three eighths drill bit and right in the center, I measured it out and put a hole right in the center, three eighths, put it on and it was a little dark. It just wasn't allowing enough light in and it was kind of making everything a little fuzzy. So I, I bumped it up to uh, a uh, three quarter inch drill bit, put a hole right in the middle. I mean, it's, it's perfect. Like, huh. From the other side of my, like the way my house is set up, like I've got this great room that's kind of 
you know how you have those rooms in your house that are really for nothing? Yep. Yeah. So I have one of those and I got my barricade set up and it aims down the hallway into the living room. And I've got taped up on the wall, a couple of different dry fire targets with different size targets, different man, you know, whatever, like man size targets for um, unsupported dry firing, shit like that. But I'd say the distance is, um, I don't know, 40 feet, 30, 35, 40 feet. Okay. And it's perfect. I mean, I can see the edges of the target. I can uh, look through the scope, do all my dry firing, shit like that. I mean, I like it and uh, it works out really good. So for all of you out there that can't find one of those little apparatuses, you can make your own. Yep. Yep. Quick and easy. All is not lost. What do you think about unsupported dry firing? Is it something that needs to be done every time you dry fire or once a week, once a month? Define unsupported, like your traditional standing, kneeling, sitting. Yeah, none of that weird stuff people come out with. We're talking like NRA, high-powered, standing, kneeling, seated, prone, hell. Uh, So my personal opinion is I I – don't practice it because generally when I've encountered stages like that, the targets are pretty generous. That's true. So you've got to look at like a, you know, like a, Oh, what's the word I'm looking here for? Like, where do I want to invest my time? You know, like what is my time going to be like most effective? Like, where should I put it? And for one stage, every other match, maybe that'll be those traditional unsupported positions on a full size Ipsic at 150 or 200 yards. Like I'm not going to invest a lot of time into that. Those are, those are kind of give me stages in my mind. Yeah. Now, if we were talking about like, Hey, you need to hit a three MOA target at a hundred or a two MOA target at a hundred. Yeah. I would be dry firing a shit ton because I could not do that. Yeah, that's pretty rough. But uh, so on those dry fire targets I have taped to the wall, I do have what would be a full-size Ipsic at 300 yards. So I did all the math and I shrunk it down. And I don't practice it every single time I dry fire. It's more like uh, I'd say every two or three weeks I'll work on the positions. And I feel like that's the hardest thing is – you know, and when we run my law enforcement course, part of their qualification is to shoot a 12 inch target at a hundred yards. And, you know, you get guys that, that at first they're like, this is, you know, why are we, why are we doing this? Well, what if you had to take that shot, you know, you need to know your capabilities, but you also need to know like what you need to work on. So we do these drills in a law enforcement class and the biggest thing I tell these guys is your natural point of aim for every one of these unsupported positions is so critical because if you can't naturally aim that rifle at the target, you're going to be fighting that thing the whole time yep. to get yep. it on the fucking target. You know? Putting active inputs in there, tiring yourself out. Yeah. So I'd say every two or three weeks, I just – I run through a few dry runs of those positions just to reinforce what those natural point of aim positions feel like. Uh, but I agree. I don't spend a lot of time on it. Uh, 
you know, especially because it doesn't fall into, you know, if you have one stage in a national level match that is unsupported, you know, that's one out of 20, one yep. out of 22, you know, yep. uh, there's other things that I, I definitely work on more unless it's a Arizona Tim Milkovich fucking match. <laughs> that dick i'm gonna see him this weekend yeah so in that case you know i'll be practicing a whole lot more but yeah i agree with you uh but it, it you know it has its place and i think no matter what dry firing drills that you do you gotta know what the purpose is behind it you know like if you're running a, a prone dry fire fucking drill right is your sole purpose to lay there and see how fast you can run the bolt or, you know, are you working on your breathing? Are you working on your, you know, let me take a step back. Think about breathing, right? I'll bring this up because when you think about fighters, right? Uh, Jiu-jitsu, boxers, whatever, like as they're throwing punches, they are breathing, you know? As they are getting hit, they're breathing. Why is that? You know, like they have to practice that way. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. So as you're laying there dry firing, you have to practice that same thing. Like it almost becomes like a, a habitual action. If you can get to that point, right, where you can get on target, inhale, exhale, and then fire, right, then you've just turned your breathing fundamental into a good habit yeah subconscious confidence mm-hmm. right running all those processes in the background the way they should be run without having to actually think about it most definitely and that's where i think a lot of that gets lost is when we just jump into these dry fire drills and we don't break some of these fundamentals down um you know so again like you're laying there prone well i'm going to focus on breathing and then 90 degree trigger press. Right. Um, and I know I saw, I have talked about it in the past. I know Tim Milkovich had posted something about it, or I think he commented to a person who was, uh, you know, asking him a question or something like that, but even he referenced it. Like when you're dry firing and we talk about having control and then watching your breathing and then you got your trigger press, right? during the dry fire process i'm watching to see if that reticle moves during my firing sequence and it's not if i jerk the trigger it's to see if i built enough bone support and stability and natural point of aim and control into this system that the firing pin as it's slamming forward isn't causing my rifle to move you know what i'm saying yep uh, and Tim brought that up in one of his posts and I was like, hell yeah. Like I'm not the only one that thinks about that shit. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. dude, I'll be laying there or I'll be shooting off of like a high barricade or something like that. And I'll see that radical move when I press the trigger and it's not from a jerking reaction. It's not from anticipation. It's not from anything trigger press related. It's just, I didn't have a good position and the slamming of the fucking firing pin caused my rifle to jerk a little bit. I'm like, God damn it you know like for me it bugs me because i have one of those weird like i don't know it's almost like uh like a muhammad ali stance on shit you know or 
maybe it was Bruce Lee, one of those badasses where, you know, it doesn't count until it hurts, right? Mm-hmm. For me, I'm like, if it wasn't a perfect repetition, then it didn't count towards the number that I was trying to achieve. So if I want to do 10 reps, for me, they got to be 10 perfect reps. Like I'm not looking for just 10 shitty ass reps. Like I might end up doing 25 because only 10 of them actually counted, you know? Yeah. Well, that, that kind of ties back into like, like tracking, tracking your, your dry fire and setting out with the goal instead of, Hey, I'm just going to do, you know, 10 reps of this. Like, well, they need to be 10 good reps or we're negatively reinforcing bad habits. Yeah. Um, Let's go. Let's, let's talk about something that you brought up. Right. So in what you just described, you would not know whether the position that you built was acceptable or not. If you had not pressed the trigger, right. Yeah. Made that firing pin drop to see if there was movement in the scope. How many dry fire drills do you do? where you don't press the trigger? Um, you know, some of the uh, live fire pistol drills, and I, I am by no means the pistol guru, right? I look at you or JJ. I look at other people who have mastered more pistol skills than me, and I see different drills out there like uh, – they're almost like rhythm drills. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, cadence drills. Yeah, like cadence drills. Like you start off slow and then you, you know, you're increasing and the whole time you're working on these things and, and building up to a certain point. And that's kind of how my dry firing goes. So um, for, some, for some of my dry firing drills, like if I'm trying to work on a position or, you know, work on my, you know, get into this kneeling or build this bone support or something like that, like I'll do, you know, a certain amount of repetitions where there is no pressing of the trigger. I'm just getting down and building my position and I'm trying to relax and let that natural point of aim take over and see where the reticle goes and how I need to reposition so that I can build that position. And then I'll introduce running the bolt and pressing the trigger. And then I'll you know, it's almost like picking apart your position piece by piece. Like, exactly. Segmenting, right? That was, that was kind of where I wanted to go. Like, so we could say, hey, for this dry fire drill or whatever we're going to do, we're going to get up on this high barricade and the target's going to be at 400 yards and you're going to build a position and you're going to shoot one round, right? Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's all people think about. Like that entire drill, right, is just one – they're not breaking the process down, right? So yeah. there's, there's a shit ton of stuff going on there. How I address the barricade initially, how I put the gear, whatever support gear I'm going to use on the barricade, how I then position the rifle on the barricade, how I build my NPA behind the rifle, how I handle the rifle, like where my support hand goes, when do I address the trigger with you know, my firing hand finger, all of that stuff. There's a shit ton of stuff going on in that one drill, right? That we just talked about, but nobody really thinks about that. They just go through the whole thing. They kind of like go through the motions and then they look through the scope. And the minute that crosshair settles on the target, they press the trigger. Right. And then they do it over again. Yep. 
break it break it down right like let's break it down don't need to don't need to rush to get that trigger press in there because that trigger press really doesn't mean shit right we're not shooting any rounds <laughs> yeah i think there's such a you know like i said earlier the, the, you, you make your money in the small details right and the difference between accuracy and precision you know a lot of people are accurate, but how many are, how many people are precise, you know, and the precision comes from those small details and working out those kinks and, you know, like building perfection at the smallest grain. Um, and I think it's overlooked because there's almost like a, a race to one. It's either a race to, to, get better faster or not necessarily get better, but the perceived notion of these are all the things that I have to do to get better. Like I have to dry fire. I have to dry fire. I have to dry fire. Like I got to do all of this dry firing to get better. Right. But then when reality sets in, did you do the right dry firing to get better? You know, like is your, what is it? Is your curve, you know, is your, What's your uphill climb look like? Is it a steep climb because you're doing all the things right? Or is it a slow curve because you've instilled a lot of bad habits? You know yep. yep. Um, so I think that's half of the reason. I think the other half is um, there's this, I don't know if it's a perception or more of like a mental thing where you feel like, you know, you got better. It's almost like the, uh, you know, I went to Burger King or I went to McDonald's and I got a Big Mac and a, you know, a quadruple size fry, but I got a Diet Coke. So I feel better about myself. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So like I dry fired today, so I feel better about myself. Right. Um, it's only after you realize the importance of all the little details that you're doing that you start to understand like, you know, that dry fire session you just did was a diet Coke, you know, like, so I, yeah, I mean, sometimes I enjoy the dry fire. Sometimes I'm just like, Oh shit, you know, and I've had to instill little things like I'm, I'm living in a house where I don't have, kids running around or anything like that you know so uh i would say that my house is not kid friendly but i have a barricade and my rifle and they are sitting there so when it is time for me to dry fire or i want to or i'm walking past it and it's looking at me and i'm looking at it and it's like okay let's do this you know i had to get it on yeah there's not a lot of extra work involved because my setup is already there um you know, and, you know, so it kind of makes things a little easier when you can make it easy on yourself. Maybe you have, uh, you know, a separate room or you have a garage or or something like that where you've, you've kind of set up your stuff so that dry firing doesn't feel like such a chore all the time, you know, little, little details, man. But, uh, I'm trying to look at our list here. I think the next thing I got on our list, you got anything else on dry firing? 
No, man. I mean, I think we've we've kind of beat it around pretty good. I know we're gonna get bad reviews for talking about dry firing so much. Whatever. I, you know, I I can't remember who I heard this from. It was <clears throat> one of the you know the big time guys. Could have been you. Might have been Kalen or, or one of those other weirdo marine dudes. But somebody told me like live fire is your reward for good dry fire. And I kind of like how that goes. How many times, like, when have you ever gone to the range, an actual range, and not fired around? Yes. I forgot my ammo. In, intentionally. I I'm going to say intentionally. Not because you left your shit at <laughs> home. Right? Uh, no, I mean, I've definitely fired when I was there. But um, I've actually, you know, I, I, I make it a point to dry fire but I've not gone to the range with the intention of not shooting something, you know, but. Yeah. I, I think there might, I think there might be some value in going to the range without any ammo. Yeah. Put in a solid dry fire session, come back the next day, shoot some live fire. If your dry fire practice was shitty, you're coming back the next day with no ammo. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Until you put in that good work. So you got to earn, earn that reward. Yep. Damn. I also, th so I also think there's some value, right, to doing dry fire on an actual range. Uh, because, I mean, it's another way to get that mental exercise in, right? Like, let's, let's read the terrain. Let's look for, you know, our wind indicators, whatever you use in a match, whether it's Mirage or, you know, in your environment, if you've got grass, trees, bushes, nothing, sand, whatever, that's a good way to get like, in my mind, that's probably the most realistic training you can get in short of actually shooting live ammunition. Oh, 100%. I mean, you nailed it on that one. Like real conditions, you get to see Mirage and whatever, you know, you have available to read the wind. Um, yep target acquisition it's real easy to see those targets on eight and a half by 11 piece of just, white computer paper that you've taped up on a on a wall i was just gonna say that like you know every time we go to some of these places you know uh, bakersfield was a good one um there's been a few other matches where it's like there's targets out there but you can't see them yeah not without looking through some type of scope or glass so it's like okay how am I going to find these? How am I going to orient my body to actually aim at this target if I can't see it? So for me, yep. I'm always gathering reference points of like, what's going to lead me to that target that I cannot visually see right now until I look through my scope, you know? And the last thing I want to do is look through my scope, not get on target, and now I'm fishing for it, you know? And I'm like stuck in this goddamn scope trying to find this target and it's not there, you know, like, so I use reference points a lot and uh, it could be skyline. It could be mountaintops. It could be trees, like, you know, anything that stands out. It's like, Oh, look, this target's always next to the Creek bed, you know? So that's definitely one uh, finding targets and uh, referencing them. Yeah. I mean, you're, you could have the best physical skills in the world. And if you can't find the target, you don't get to put any of those skills to use. Definitely. Now you, you came out to our desert duel match, did you not? 
Yep, I sure did. So how do the conditions similar to that, right? Now I'm not talking about the rain, but the wind. The wind doesn't just affect your round down range, but it also affects your position. You know, when you get winds like we had out there, 30, 40 miles an hour, it's physically moving your rifle, yeah. your body. And yeah. It's a whole different ball game, you know? So absolutely, there's value to be gained out of dry firing on a real range, 100%. So yeah, just so, something I wanted to throw out there, you know, not everybody has access to that, but if you do, I would encourage you you know, try it one day. Go out there without any ammo. Yeah, for some of you that uh, that are like, fuck you, Jeremy, I'm not going to the range with no ammo. Maybe set some dry fire standards, and you have to complete those standards before you live fire. You know? Yeah, or that too. That works. So, cool, man. That was it. That was a good dry fire uh, conversation, and I think there was a lot covered there. Uh, the next topic I've got on our list is, uh, you know, this, I think we've touched on it before and I know I've ranted about it in previous podcasts, whether it was with you or with Ray, but the, the NRL season has been put into all kinds of disarray with this Corona crap happening, right? Matches yeah. been canceled. They've been postponed. Like, you know, People are moving matches to the opposite ends of the year. And then, you know, Gunworks just straight up canceled their match. They said, we're going to do it next year. Here with any story. NorCal moved it to next year. Um, you know, so many, so many matches are, are trying to find their own way, right? Yep. With, with all of that happening, the NRL has moved the championship to April. And is that what they decided on? I knew they'd moved it like to mid-year, but it's, it, April's in the in the books now. I believe that's the last the schedule that I that I read was uh, April of 2021 will be the championship for the NRL season. So it's still going to give you a full year. So the question I have is, if you made up the rules, if this is the JTPRL league, right? <laughs> Jesus. What would the rules be in terms of how, how long would the season be? You know, how would the season be conducted? How many matches would count towards the finale? Would every match count? And, uh, you know, again, that would play into what's the length of that season. And then the value of border wars, would you have, you know, border wars would count towards the finale, would not count? Is there a certain... All right, so let's start at the top. How long would the season be? Uh, I mean, I would say 10 months. Okay, 10-month season, okay? Yep. And as far as the conduct, how many I, – and I understand, like I'm not saying that we should have less matches, uh, and I'm not saying we should have more because, you know, the issue that we're running into right now is that – there's only so many matches. Well, at least last year, there was only so many matches and a lot of them were getting full, you know, and it was full with the same people. So if you were trying to go to, you know, a certain amount of matches, but you couldn't get a slot, like 
you're screwed. You're screwed at the end of the year. That's just it. So what would be the amount of matches that would count? You know, not every match has to count towards the season. It could just be something that you want to go do. You like the match format, whatever it is. But would there be a certain amount of matches such as, you know, um, like football right now is going through the same issue, college football. They don't know if the season's going to start on time. So they're looking at a reduced season where you're only playing inside your conference. There would only be eight games for the season instead of yeah. 12. Yep. Um, you know, just to keep the championship on target. And, you know, but football has a set amount of games that count. And then race driving, race car drivers have a set amount of races. So how many matches would be available so that you could – do these matches. Well, so let's uh, like let's put a little bit of like let's put some other information in there. Let's assume that there are no other competing leagues, right? It's it's just my league. There's no there's no competing league on the East Coast, or there's there's no like other minor leagues. Like nothing's going to be sucking shooters away from my league, right? Like this this is the only game in town. Yep. I would say season's 10 months long. Ideally, you would try to have a match every other weekend. So 20 matches. And those, those five weekend months, they kind of fuck shit up. So 20, 20 matches total. Okay. Um, I would say instead of having just your top three score, I would move it to four or maybe five. And then I would also put a cap on how many matches you can shoot. Now, I might be shooting myself in the foot there because I'm, I'm not an MD, okay? I'm not involved with the NRL or the PRS in any capacity, and I'm not thinking about anything financial right now or taking into consideration like sponsorship, like blah, 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 any of that stuff. So I'm not trying to, I'm not thinking about how can I get the most shooters to every one of these matches, right? That's, <laughs> I don't care about that. Um, but I think that would make it interesting. Like, Hey, you're going to have, you need five matches to qualify for the championship and you can only shoot 10. Okay. How does that work out? I don't know. I guess, I mean, I'm sure there are certain restrictions or certain like allowances you could put in there. Like, you know, if a match isn't full and you've already shot your 10, but there's space, then you can, you can, you can get in. Right. But if, if you sign up for it and you've got, you know, more than enough matches under your belt and a, a other shooter signs up that does not have enough matches under their belt, then that shooter takes precedent or preference. Yeah. Uh, I Here's, see it like maybe if you've already got your five qualifying and they count, you know, I don't know. I, I, I guess the way that it goes right now, because the finale is a finale is a mixture of how you did at the finale plus how you did throughout the season to see who that champion is, right? The final match does not determine the champion. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a percentage. Like, there, it's a pretty big percentage for the finale, but your points for the season also count. So, 
if you could only go to 10 matches, it would limit the amount of improvement you could do. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just spitballing. I think like looking at, at the seasons that I've participated in in the past, like just taking your top three out of, I don't know, some, some people shoot 10, 12, 14, 16 matches a year, right? Just taking your top three. I don't think that accurately like portrays or represents your skills. Okay. If I take the top three out of my 16 attempts, Right. Well, hopefully those top three are going to be pretty dang high. I guess what I'm trying to avoid is at the end of the year, seeing shooters one through 10, all with perfect 300 scores because each of them won three matches. Yeah. 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 Like let's, let's try to get a little bit more separation at the top, right. Or, or require shooters to demonstrate more consistency throughout the season. How so you, if you have to average your, your top five instead of your top three, probably going to drop those averages down a little bit or put a little separation in them. I got gotcha. you. Do you think – now this wouldn't be a – this would be a live scoring system if you think about it, right, where at the beginning of the year – Let's say uh, the first match this year was rifles only, right? Yep. Now, at that rifles only match, Chris Way won, right? Um, yes. I don't know what other shooters were there or weren't there. I know Regina was there. Tim was there. So you had uh, like a good mixture of new talent, old talent, you know, but I believe Vibbert was at a different match. John Pinch was at a different match. So in the beginning, rifles only would be worth 100 points, right? In terms of a, a uh, like a challenging, like the field, the, the, the competition field. It's yeah, like the, the difficulty level. Because of the shooters that are there, right? Now, let's say, you know, Chris Way has been busting his ass with dry fire and live fire, so he continues to do well, right? But as the season progresses and you see that Jake Vibbert is doing well, you see that John Pinch is doing well, you see all of these other shooters, right? Let's say they all meet up at a match and Chris Way wins again, but Jake Vibbert comes in second. John Pinch comes in third, right? You're starting to see the heavy, the heavy field come together all at one match. Well, that match, in terms of difficulty with other competitors, would probably outweigh the difficulty of rifles only. Would you agree? Yep. So rifles only may now only be worth 95 points. And this other match that Chris Way or whoever won is more difficult because of the talent that was there so it's now worth 100 does that make sense yeah and so like you're saying that as the season progresses there's some formula predetermined formula that constantly alters what those matches are are now worth in relation to other matches well in relation to a shooter's ranking right because every shooter gets ranked 
constantly updated, right? Chris Way is the number one NRL shooter right now. But as we progress, if he stays in that spot, then every match that he goes to is going to have a, you know, a pretty heavy weight associated with it because he's the number one shooter. Does that make sense? Mm, yep, yep, yep. You know, okay, shooter, I see what you're as, saying. As shooter rankings are updated, then the value of that match is also elevated or lowered based off of what ranked shooters were there. I think that could help eliminate some of the meatball matches that take place out there. And I haven't really seen a meatball problem in the NRL, to be honest with you. Um, I could be wrong, though. I definitely haven't gone to every single NRL match. But I don't know. I'm, I'm curious if this, you know, if the scoring system could be a living, you know, formula where matches are weighted based off of competitor participation. That's interesting. Interesting thought. I don't know. I don't know. Something, something to play with. I don't, I don't necessarily know that. Like, so, okay. You get those top shooter guys, and depending on which one of those top shooters shows up to the match, that's going to determine what that match's value is. Well, how does that – let's think about the other shooters, right, like your mid-pack or your lower, your lower pack shooters. I don't, I don't know who's going to show up to those matches when I register for them, right, two or three months in advance. So do I get like a shitty roll of the die and the three or four matches that I sign up for, nobody else signs up for, maybe because I live in a, in a part of the country where it's not very popular to shoot these matches at this particular time of the year or something. And now I say, but not afforded the same opportunity as other shooters who go to different matches that have better shooters at them. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm necessarily trying to punish shooters. I'm more or less trying to even the playing field. So if we, let's say, closer to the end of the year, like October timeframe, we have two NRL matches scheduled on the same weekend. And Well, we just got to not do that, man. If this, is, if this is Jeremy Ty's league, it's a match every other weekend. There will not be any scheduling conflicts. That's true. That's true. This is your Jeremy Ty league. So, uh, again, just, just putting it out there. However, you know, this is a uh, – what, what do they call that? A uh, what can happen will happen? Ooh, I don't know. Murphy's Law. Okay. So, let's say there's one match where the top 25 shooters in the ranking system are not there. For whatever reason that that happens, top 25 are not at the match. Yep. Do you feel like that match should be valued at the same height as another match where all top 25 shooters are, you know, laying it down? Uh, yes and no. So... That's part of the reason why I would want to have more matches averaged out for your score instead yeah. of just, you know, three. If you had five, right, let's say you come across a match like that and 
and uh you know joe exotic shows up to a match and there's no other shooters there and he takes home the first place trophy well he's got a score of 100 but is that going to happen at the other four matches that he is required to shoot to even qualify for the championship probably not so that 100 right that outlier is going to be reduced or diminished in the overall scheme of things because we're taking more matches into account. Yeah, I just, I just did the numbers. And uh, so I did like, you know, like an average, uh, above average shooter, you know, like, you know, one match they got a 72%, the next match they got a 76, and then an 83, and then an 86, and then a 100, right? There's that lone 100 out there. And then I did the math, and that came out to uh, an, an average score of 82. And yeah. then I did the math for, you know, they got a 71, they got a 76, 83, 86, and then an 80. And that actually, you're right, the percentage is not that far off. They're at a 79, right? So um, it wouldn't bump them that much having that one win because of the five-match format. Yeah. That's a pretty good idea. You're a pretty smart guy. You must have done that. Uh, I'm, I'm just spitballing, man. And, mm -hmm. and I, I think of this like I, I think of myself, right? I'm, I'm throwing myself under the bus here. You know, like I put together a couple good matches last year where I was, you know, mid-80s, low-80s. But then I also had some matches where I was like fucking 50 and 60, yeah. right? Like nothing to write home about. But you wouldn't like you wouldn't know because you would look at just my my best three, but that's not really showing you know like what my overall consistent skill level is, right? You're just seeing me at my best in a pretty narrow little snapshot. I shot um, seven or eight matches last year, and it took the best three. Yeah, if we took the best five, my average would have dropped significantly. Oh, I like it. I like now, I'm not saying that, that the top-level guys, their average would drop significantly because it probably, you know, it wouldn't. They're the top for a reason. But yeah. they would put some separation in there. Yeah, no. Um, and it would also, I think, require a little bit more commitment to one league. Uh, right now, you know, there's two big leagues and, and a whole lot of outlier matches. Um, so, you know, you pick and choose. Hey, I'm going to shoot three here. I'm going to shoot three here. And I've got a reasonable chance of scoring well at these three matches. And I'm going to make it in a championship for both ones. Well, if you got to commit a little bit more, you know, where am I going with this? You know, put, you need to invest some more into this league before we put you into the championship type deal. Yeah. I got you. I got you. I think it's a good way so. to go. Um, I, I definitely like the five matches. So what about the border wars? Like how would that factor into – has your score been tallied up yet? Uh, I couldn't tell you, man. I haven't checked. <laughs> I haven't checked. I do want to say that I saw some stuff about border wars being posted onto the website, but I did not dig into it. Um, it just hasn't been on my radar, man. So how would that factor into your league or would it not, would it be its own thing? I, I think if, uh, 
if there was, it would not, that's the short answer. It would not. So if I had a 10 month league, a match every other weekend, evenly spread throughout the country or as evenly as possible, right. Depending on, on weather conditions and, and time of year type stuff, then there would be no need for, um, you know, a farm league, a minor league. I was just thinking that same thing like that. Show up, that show almost, up to the big ones or don't show up at all. Yeah. That would almost be considered like a, like a minor league or an amateur league as opposed to your national level. Yeah. I'm not saying that there is not value in that stuff because I really enjoy going and shooting those border wars matches. Um, but I, I don't think that it should factor into the big stuff. Trying to look on the website right now. I'm not seeing a lot of, uh, not seeing a lot of information in terms of scores. Travis, come on, man. Yeah. He'll just blame Brittany. All the matches are on here, but there's no uh, there's no updates for any of this. So, hmm. All right. Well, uh, where where am I here? Okay. In the Jeremy Ty League, are there going to be divisions, or is it a slugfest? No, there 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 would be divisions. I don't know how that would happen. But there would be divisions. And I think we will see that at some point in the two leagues that we have right now. That's, that's the, next, like, the next evolution in the growth of this sport. Yeah. Um, that, that's, I think that's the only way that it survives. You can't take – I'm going to go back to my USA stuff, right? So in USA, you've got the top of the heap is Grandmaster and the Master – an A, B, C, D, and then your last one is U for unclassified, right? So those are your rankings. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's say you've got a D-level shooter and a GM-level shooter, but there is no – they're not breaking those skills apart, right? Right, like, Or not differentiating between those skills eventually – the D-level guy is going to say, I'm tired of getting my ass kicked. I'm not going to come anymore. Yeah, yeah. And we have now lost that shooter forever. And we've also lost the five other shooters that he's friends with who he is now saying, you know, like, I went here and, and like, there's no place for me in the sport right now. Now, you could say, well, your attitude sucks and you need to get better, right? But that, I don't think that that's the message the league needs to be conveying. Right, like give a person a, uh, something to work towards. Like, well, let's move out of D and let's get into C, and let's move out of C and let's get into B. And and you give them smaller goals instead of, hey, compare my forty percent skill level to the hundred percent shooter. Like, that's I don't want to pay thousands of dollars and take time off from work and my family and travel to go get my shit pushed in by somebody that does this professionally. Definitely. Um, so, well, you there's may- room. There's room for divisions, man. And I think that there is, um, like, there's enough shooters to where you could break it up. I just I don't know how that would be implemented. There's got to be some sort of, uh, you know, standard stage at every match, a classifier stage. Whether they want to, you know, shoot the same stage at every match or have a playbook of stages. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's why I don't get paid the big bucks to make these decisions. I don't want to make those decisions, but I think that that's the way things need to go. And in my league, I would pay somebody to make, make that happen. <laughs> well, this is your league, but I wanted to bring up the unclassified, right? Do you okay. think that, okay, this is the Jeremy Ty league and you, is a membership required to participate in the championship? Yes. Okay. So what would unclassified be then? Just unclassified in terms of skill or you're just, you're attending these matches, but you don't have the ability to qualify for the championship because you're unclassified. No. So unclassified would, would literally mean, and I'm going back to USPSA here. That means the league does not know what level of shooter you are. Okay. So um, I'll, I'm going to try to relay how USPSA does it and, let me throw out a disclaimer first. I have not shot USPSA in several years. So it's very possible that the rules could have changed or that I am misremembering them. But from my recollection, when you join USPSA, you enter as an unclassified shooter, right? In whatever division you're going to shoot. Um, and at each USPSA match you go to, there is a classifier stage that they come out, like they take a stage out of a playbook that get shot around the country, right? And they compare your scores with everybody else's scores. And that's how they determine what level of shooter you are. So that classifier system is constantly evolving, rotating, right? Like your classification fluctuates up and down, hopefully up, but they average like the best four um, out of the, out of the like six most recent recent eligible classifiers, right? So you've got to at least shoot four before we pull you out from unclassified and stick you into one of the ranked um, classifications. Okay. And then based on how your shooting progresses, there were some rules like if you're classifier, if you sh- let's say you're an 80% shooter and you tanked a classifier and you only got a 20%, well, that falls outside of the range of scores that we are going to take into consideration for your classification so if you fucked it up right like we're going to give you a pass on that one um and i don't remember the numbers off the top of my head but they had a system in place to where it would automatically determine what classifiers were eligible for your score and then it would constantly do your score as you had more classifiers input in um and so you know Hey, I'm a 60% shooter. I go to a match. I burn the classifier down. I walk out of that match and I'm now a 63% shooter based on my average. Then I go to another match and I burn it down and now I'm a 67% shooter. Then I go to another match and I burn it down. Well, now I'm a 71% shooter and I've bumped up from whatever, you know, from D to C. So that gives me something to work on as a shooter something to focus on, something to be positive, right? To, to some uh, like positive feedback instead of, well, shit, last time I got my shit pushed in by whatever number one shooter, he was a hundred and I was 60. And Hey, this time I came here and he was a hundred and I was 61. Like what, what am I doing with my life type deal? Um, I'm looking at the PRS website now and it looks like they have 
I haven't shot. I haven't even followed PRS. Yep, me neither. I, I remember uh, a couple years ago, I think when Sin City hosted VPRC maybe in 2015. I don't know. It was, it was a, I'm reasonably sure it was a PRS match back then. And we were like yeah. proofing, proofing the stages prior to the actual match being shot. They had some sort of classified or standard stages set up. I and think we shot those. They have but, those, but now it looks like they have qualifying matches. Because looking at their schedule, they have pro qualifier matches. They have eight of them. Yeah, yep. And then they have also eight AG Cup pro qualifier matches. So there's 16 matches total that you can attend to qualify for the championship. Now, they have way many more matches than that. I mean, they got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 standard matches on top of your 16 qualifiers, right? So what's the difference between a standard match and a qualifier match? I don't think your standard matches will give you points towards the championship qualifier. Why would be my question. It just sounds like that's the rules. Now I'm looking at uh, uh, let's see here. Now you have to pay for these different memberships. Like if you want to compete for the AG Cup, you got to pay for that membership. Yeah. What What is it? Is it was it like a thousand bucks? Let's see. So your PRS Pro Series membership is a hundred bucks, and then your add-ons. Um, get your mix-ins with your yogurt, boys and girls. Your your AG Cup Series add-on is another 150. So you can get all three memberships: your regional, your pro, and your AG Cup for 275. Okay. Uh, I'm really just trying to see if they have divisions broke down in here. I'm not seeing it though. Uh, but I did see in the standings that there was like your production and your open class. I didn't see anything about tactical though. So I'm not sure if they're still doing tactical like they once were. But uh, so I know that they've done some things in terms of like breaking divisions down, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I think that that's that's how the sport is going to evolve or or progress. It will eventually get to something like that. There needs to be some infrastructure support behind that. Um, maybe that's the holdup. I don't know. Okay, so I found it. So they have open, tactical, production, gas gun, and yeah. then lady, senior, junior, mill, and international. These are all yep. different divisions. Yep. You're competing inside for. So. Yep. So, so divisions, right, are based, based upon the equipment that you're using, and then classes should be based upon your skill level. There you go. Yeah. But do they have any classes? Any they do. Differentiation. So Is it like pro and amateur? Well, they have, uh, they have pro, semi-pro, marksman, amateur, and not classified. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
how do they break those up? That's a great question. I don't think I have enough time to research this right now. We'll have to save this for another day. We'll chat about it next time. Yeah. And I should probably refresh my memory on USPSA because I'm sure some of that stuff that I just spouted off was wrong. Yeah. But yeah, it looks like they have a, a pretty decent breakdown. But you know what? I do remember from competing in TPRC and um, some of the monthly matches down in Arizona, they were part of the PRS regional series. And I mean, I've been to the Arizona monthly match quite a few times and uh, you know, everything from taking second place, third place, um, you know, some of the, the national level matches like Utah I took fourth, uh, another match I took fourth. Uh, there was a third place in there. Um, but I was still ranked as a uh, um, semi-pro. So I'm not really sure how the classifiers work in terms of being upgraded or downgraded. You know, I'm not, I'm not familiar with how that, that plays out. Yep. Yeah, me neither. I'll have to educate myself on the PRS stuff. I've, PRS really isn't on my radar. You know, I'm West Coast guy and I shoot predominantly NRL. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like there's some, uh, some good information here, but, you know, PRS is just not widely available on the West Coast. That does make it a little challenging. Yeah, well, if this was Jeremy Ty's league, it would be evenly available across the entire continental United States. You live in Alaska, you live in Hawaii, like, too bad for you. You guys can fly out here. <laughs> but there would be 20 matches evenly spaced across the country. There you go. I'm down, man. I am down. So we got a lot of content in terms of uh, NRL and talking about that. And I like where all of it's going. I think, uh, I don't think there's any perfect solution right now. I do think that every year there needs to be advancement, you know, like I don't think anybody feels like either league right now is a perfect answer in terms of scoring or divisions or classes like you know so I definitely feel like every year there should be some type of an advancement to move it in the right direction well, yeah I agree with that um, we kind of talked about uh, our next topic for dry fire but I'm going to save it for our next episode that we do together uh, but it's the mental aspect of shooting like 90 percent mental um and we touched on it during dry fire and and shit like that but it's such a huge component of being successful at these matches yep so um definitely need to give it its due diligence but before we get out of here there's something that i need to talk about right because oh shit it's fucking pissing me off right now Moving targets, right? <laughs> God damn it. There's a million different ways to figure out what your lead is for a mover. All right. So I posted up on social media a picture, or I think it was a video. It was a video of one of our law enforcement homies engaging a mover from 200 yards, right? And he was just straight wailing in that thing, wasn't he? Yeah, he was doing good, right? Now, the formula that I show these guys breaks down 
every aspect of what we're doing, right? What's the speed of the mover? And then we're converting that to, um, you know, feet per second. And then multiplying by the fucking time of flight. And then we're converting it to mils or minutes. And that should tell you what your lead is, right? If you guys want to know what the formula is, go look on Max Ordnance's uh, Instagram page. But is it a long formula? Yes, it is. Is it meant to be done on the spot? No, no. it's not. Okay, these are pre-planned things that you do. And you should know what your leads are for a, you know, we reference people a lot because law enforcement, military, that is what we're engaging. So you got a guy who's walking at two and a half miles an hour, or he's jogging, he's running, you know what these speeds are and you have, you know, out the three, 400 yards, your lead is pretty much the same. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion. People are like, well, what if the guy's at 200? I only calculated my lead for a hundred yards. It don't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, the target size is so big. Not just that, but when we're talking about minutes of angle or mills, they are angular units of measure. So if your lead for a mover at a hundred yards is one and a half mills, right? Well, that's yeah, that, that, that distance is going to be different between 100 and 300 yards. Yeah. And your mill or minute is also growing with distance, you know? Yeah. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. So your lead is going to be the same inside 300 yards. So you're really only having to memorize four fucking leads for movers. Right. But this is a process that you do long before you find yourself in a position to engage that mover. Now I saw, uh, one of my students messaged me, sent me a screenshot. He's like, Hey, does this formula work? And it was like, measure the distance the target moves over one second in mills and then multiply it by the time of flight. This is a way faster method of calculating. And I'm like, okay, how much time is it going to take you sitting in your position to measure how fast that suspect or that target is moving over one second and then pull out your calculator to multiply it by your time of flight? This is also a formula. Will it work? Yes. But is it something you can do in your fucking position? Probably not. No, it's not. I mean, okay, Jeremy, you're a law enforcement officer. If you find yourself in a position where you're looking at the door of a suspect's house and he comes running out of that house and you have a split second to jump your reticle up in front of him and hold a lead, is that enough time to sit there and calculate, well, how many mils did he move over one second? And what's my time of flight to 25 yards? And 100% not. Exactly, right? The formula will work, but it's still a formula that has to be done prior to the engagement. And the problem with that formula is you don't know how far, how far the target will move over one second, right? So, yep. again, like, let's be realistic here. We, you know... I don't need, and the way that it was worded over this post was like, you don't need this long ass formula to engage movers. And it's like, okay, so let me stomp your dick here for a second. Like, 
These are both pre-planned methods. Now, I've looked at methods that you can use to measure how far the target moves over a second and what's your lead, right? And there's a, there is a quick formula, right? But again, do you have one second of time to do this? And, and depending on what you're engaging, you might not. <clears throat> so better to do the math ahead of time. And, you know, if you're going to try and call me out over social media, just fucking call me out. And we can have this discussion like men. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of beating around the bush. I wonder if you could incorporate that into some dry fire. That way you stopped crying about it when you had to do it on the clock. Right. So weird. Now I'm going to have to go buy an erector set and create a mover for fucking 10 feet away from me. (laughs) (laughs) So Mm. the last thing I want to talk about on movers is that cop video, right? I laid out that whole formula and said, this is a way to do this. And there was a lot of people because I did ask a question. I said, what would your lead be? This is a, you know, this is a two and a half mile an hour target. And there's a lot of people out there that were like, hold lead edge and send it. And it's like, oh, okay, that is not the answer, guys, okay? Because you don't know what the size of that target is. If it was a full-size man target, which is 20 inches wide, it may have worked for you. But probably not, even with a full-size man target, because the lead, I believe, for that 200-yard moving target, I think it was one and a half mils, Jeremy. And uh, here, let me do the let me do the math for you really quick here. Fucking 200 yards, right? Oh God, 200 yards, one and a half mils. What are we looking at? 10 inches, right? Mm, yes. Yeah. So 10 inches. If you're holding lead edge of the target, and that target's moving, right? You're only giving yourself 10 inches to play with. Yeah, the back half. The back half. So you might tag him on the back or you might miss, depending on how good your trigger press was. So it's not good enough to just hold lead edge. you got to hold what the lead is from center of the target. Well, here, So let me stop you right there. Like, Here's another thing I don't think people think about when they're shooting movers, right? So in a match setting, target is usually facing you, right? So you're getting that full width of the target whatever it is, right? Two thirds Ipsic, full, full size Ipsic, whatever. But if you were to try to take that mentality, well, just hold lead edge, right? And put it into a real world scenario on a two-legged critter. Is that two-legged critter going to be crab walking left or right at two and a half or whatever speed, you know, you think it's moving? Yeah. Probably not, right? So like earlier you said, width of a human target is 20 inches, right? From shoulder to shoulder. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm on board with that. But what is it from front of the chest to rear of the back when they are hard 90 against you, moving left or right? Exactly. Seven or eight inches, maybe? Yeah. So we've been using So now put that. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, so now put that, you know, hold hold lead edge and shoot and that 10 inch shot is now moving or missing two inches behind them yeah yep and uh that's 
that's why the target we use is a 66% IPSC, right? It's 12 inches wide. It's a smaller profile. It looks more like the side of a person. And there's not a lot of room for error there. If you hold lead edge, you're missing that target, right? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, too many times I hear that, that, that phrase, and it's not just with movers. Like, you know, we have this course of fire out at the range where you got to shoot one big target and then you got to shoot the little target next to it. And the target might only be 250 yards away. You got some wind blowing down the canyon. You hold right side of this 12 inch plate and you hit. Well, holding the right edge of a 12 inch plate is not the same as holding right edge on a five inch plate. Absolutely. So then they miss and they're like, well, I held right edge. I'm like, but what was the measurement? You know, the measurement is what matters. Yep. You know, and it's the same thing with movers. That's why your lead is so important to know because it's not always going to be whole lead edge. So the more, you know, man, the more, you know, but that's good. I like it. Anyways, dude, I'll, I'll tell you when I need to figure out movers, I ask the RO what the movement speed is. And then I pull out my max ordinate card. <laughs> and I work it out. And usually it's wrong because the mover speed is wrong. Yeah. That's uh it's never 3.7 like they say it is. The you know what I think you and me, you, me, Jared, we all went to Paula and they had that mover set up and I busted, Yeah, that was I busted out no. my tripod, dude. Is that when you splayed the the legs out super wide? Yeah, I you mean, were like it down low, and you just you unlock it so you could pan left and right, and just ran that thing like a boss. Oh, it worked flawlessly. Yeah, for the first run, right? I mean, it was it was perfect. It, it worked. It did everything I wanted to do. But after the seventh hit, the target broke. That's right. We had to go cold. I had to go fix it. So then, on run number two the wind picked up a little bit and it wasn't until like after three or four shots that it registered like, Oh shit, I'm constantly missing on this side of the target. I need to add some wind to this. Put a little into it. Yep. So that kind of spoiled it for me. But, uh, yeah, the, the wind factor, I get a lot of questions, especially when we put the mover on and, and people want to shoot the mover and we talk about engaging it and it's like, there's two ways to do this. You can calculate what your lead is right to left. And then if your lead changes based on wind, you know, one direction is going to be different than the other. You got to add one direction, subtract from the other. If you've got wind, right? Just put it into the scope. Exactly. You can dial it into the scope and not have to change your lead. Amazing. And, uh, dude, I'm telling you, we had one student, right? And I get it. You know, you want to try different things and I am all about that. But this lesson that he learned, it was one of those that I learned the hard way and I just learned my lesson because he's like, Oh, I want to try it holding. I'm like, all right, that's cool. good luck, bro. You know? So from right <laughs> to left, his lead was like 1.5 and we're shooting at 550 yard mover. So right to left, hold 1.5 lead. But from left to right, okay, his lead was like 2.2. And 
the first run, it went pretty good. I think he got like three shots off and he hit, you know, two out of three and then going the other direction, he got a couple shots off. But then as some things started to happen, like, you know, he had to change a mag or he got a double feed, whatever, like different stressors were affecting him. You forget that difference. And he forgot. In direction. Yep. <laughs> yep. And it's like, and he looks at me, he's like, I should have died. I'm like, well, it's a lesson that we all got to learn, my friend. You know? He won't make that same mistake twice, though. Yeah. So, good times, man. Good times. Well, anyways, dude, it's been an awesome time chatting with you. We've got some cool conversation out there. Look forward to the next episode. Uh, it is Wednesday. I got my PR3 and 4 class this weekend. You guys are headed to Arizona for the gas gun match. Yep, I'm going to go shoot it up at Cowtown for a little while. I, so, what was the last, last time you shot a match, man? Oh, it's so bad. I, I can't remember right now. I want to say it was either Paula at the end of January. D didn't we go to that match together? Uh, I think you might have just cut out, man. Which one did you say? I think Paula at the end of January. Yeah, yeah. That was my. Was that before or after Severson's? match out of edwards that was after didn't we do a desert duel in march though so you did i didn't shoot it i came out in our own that was the january one yeah okay so no then i didn't make it to the second one okay so the last match i shot was mine in march at my facility okay the last one i shot was was severson's second match and i don't remember what the date was on that but I haven't shot a match in a minute, man, and I'm tired of this sitting around bullshit. So, well, that's good. Hopefully I, I got to go shoot. At, at uh, you go down to Arizona, shake off the cobwebs, and then come May, we're gonna do two matches out at our facility. One will be an NRL style, one will be a field match style, but we're gonna try and fill the void for everybody that's sitting around with nothing to do. My man will sign me up. I'll shoot him if I can shoot him, or if you need ROs, I will come down there and ROs. Sounds like a plan, brother. All right, dude. Well, it was good chatting with you, man. I think, uh, like you already said, I think we got some good content. My phone says we've been talking for two and a half hours. Perfect. So that's probably good enough for tonight, but let's definitely get another one of these in soon. Yeah, let's reconnect next week, next week after, uh, after I get done teaching and you get done blasting. Sounds good, man. All right, homie. I will chat with you later. Everybody else, appreciate you guys listening, and we'll catch you later. Take care.